Hello and welcome to the latest COVID-19 special episode of the Global Captive podcast. So in the previous few weeks, we've heard how the coronavirus pandemic is impacting captives through potential claims activity and disputes, the effect on investment portfolios and captive board meetings, and most recently on international employee benefits programs. All these previous episodes and the other regular GCP episodes are available on any podcast platform, so please do find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox or any other platform you get your podcasts from. This time though, we are going to hear from Pete Krantz, Executive Managing Director and Captive Practice Leader at Friend of the Podcast, Beecher Carlson, and David Provost, Deputy Commissioner of the Captive Insurance Division at the States of Vermont. As we see the global economy take a steep downturn, many businesses are beginning to experience serious cash flow trouble, and the captive if executed correctly and in the right circumstances, can release capital on a short or long-term basis through various techniques. Now, Pete starts by outlining what conversations are already beginning to take place on this with clients, and Dave gives us the regulatory considerations for various strategies. Yeah, it's, it's uh, certainly an interesting time that we're in and with the economic environment that we're in in particular, a lot of clients, the, the parent companies of captives, could be facing cash flow challenges, revenue challenges, uh, all sorts of different issues as they're navigating through this process. Clearly, this would apply for a well-capitalized captive, but if you're in that situation, there might be an opportunity to do a dividend to the parent or a loan to the parent, which can free up cash flow. Uh, and typically those transactions can be done in a, in a fairly expeditious time frame. You need to be concerned as you're, as you're working through that with ensuring that you're still meeting your solvency and, and doing so in a conservative standpoint because you don't want to put the, the captive in a poor financial position. Um, in addition to that, there's, there's conversations that we're having around uh, selling off old liabilities. It's, it's something that we've been talking about for uh, quite some time with clients, but um, it, it, it's become a bit more um, of, a, of a, 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 not urgency, but, but it's getting a lot more attention now because you can free up, it, there's, there's some cash flow that goes out to pay old liabilities, but you can potentially free up collateral uh, that was on those transactions as well. So there's a, a, an opportunity there. Um, so we're seeing a lot of those types of opportunities from an insurance standpoint. Um, you know, the, the pandemic may or may not be either excluded or, um, you know, it, it might result in the equivalent of a non-property damage BI claim, um, something that may not be covered. Uh, so we're now uh, looking at different programs around that, either on a stop-loss type of basis um, or in conjunction uh, with, with insurance in the marketplace. Great. Thanks, Pete. I mean, you touched there on, uh, in particular, dividends and selling off legacy liabilities. And we'll, we'll address the legacy liabilities a, a bit later on. But on the on the dividends opportunities for captives to support their parents, what are some of the key considerations in, involved with that? And how, how do they need to go about doing that correctly? Yeah. So on the dividend, you, you have to think about the fact that a dividend is going to re- reduce the capital and surplus of the captive. So you need to go through and make sure that from a ratio standpoint, the premium and the loss reserve ratios are protected. So if you think about in the U.S. jurisdictions, if you're targeting, say, a three to one ratio and you so that, that 
in excess of the three to one ratio, you might have $10 million. You can look and see about doing the dividend there. I wouldn't typically recommend doing the full $10 million. I'd, I'd want to do something on a conservative standpoint or recommend doing something on a conservative standpoint. Uh, but you want to look at those ratios to make sure that the captive is still meeting those ratios uh, and is in a strong position to meet its, its obligations in the future. Great. And I think that's a really good opportunity to bring Dave in there as well. Dave, on the question of, of dividends payments, what concerns or questions are regulators likely to have if it's a, if it's a dividends payment, which is maybe somewhat out of the norm for that captive? What, what would you be looking for in terms of reassurance? Sure. Um, well, you know, the, go back to the old saying that you've seen one captive, you've seen one captive. And usually what we really look at is what's the company look like after the dividend? In traditional insurance, there there's rules about dividends, and there typically you can you can dividend back last year's income or up to 10% of surplus as a dividend. Anything beyond that is is considered an extraordinary dividend and requires approval. Uh, with captives, all dividends require approval, at least in Vermont. But depending on the company's philosophy, whether they have given back dividends gradually over time or have just built up a tremendous surplus and are now wanting a, a large dividend. We don't have those same rules. So we, again, it goes back to what's the captive look like after the dividend is granted and what is the captive's uh, surplus needs? Because if, if you're offering medical malpractice insurance, you need a lot more surplus than you do if you're uh, covering cell phones. A $100 cell phone doesn't turn into a million dollar cell phone when you lose it. It's still a $100 cell phone, so you just don't need that much capital. Medical liability claims can turn into big claims. They usually start out as big claims and, and get worse. So you need more capital in a situation like that. So again, we'll, we'll take a look what's the what's the size of the dividend and really focus on what's the company look like? What's the captive look like after the dividend? Does it still look like a strong captive? In which case, we'll, we'll generally uh, grant approval for the dividend. And in those cases, you know, the risk manager who who uh, has been banking that money in the captive is now going to be a, a hero. Um, not that they aren't heroes every year when they give a little bit back, but if you suddenly face a tough time like this and you've got a bucket of cash, uh, you're going to look. You're going to be very much appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I think Pete. The other area where captives are already um, heavily involved in is, of course, uh, loan back to parents or sending loans back to the parent. Um, that sometimes captives are actually criticised for doing that too often because uh, an investment uh, strategy might be more lucrative than loaning back to the parent. Are you hearing more interest from? clients in learning about cash to the parent and then we'll come to Dave after on, on the regulatory considerations on that as well. It's an interesting question uh, because whether you uh, do a loan or a dividend you know, ultimately your goal is to to move cash back to the parent for its to, to support it for its financial needs. With a loan you don't necessarily have the same surplus considerations uh, but as Dave mentioned you still have to look at, at what the regulatory requirements are. So you know, a loan to a parent can be driven and, and Dave will talk about the requirements there but can be driven by a number of, of regulatory factors. If you're in an offshore jurisdiction, the, the loan may or may not be considered a relevant asset, so it could have an impact on your capital surplus. Um, aside from that, it could be a better opportunity to, to a short-term cash solution as opposed to the dividend, which would be a bit more parent, uh, sorry, it would be a bit more permanent. And then Dave, on the, on the loans question, similar to the question on dividends, what, what needs to be considered to do this properly? And what are there, are there limits to sizes of loans as well that, that captors can make back to their parent? Yeah, there's absolutely limits. Um, the loan itself is, is usually 
a great idea for the captive. It's certainly likely to be a better return on the captive's investments than they can get uh, in the market. Uh, it's certainly a good use of the money for the parent. That's the, the parent's business uh, is operating the parent's business and, and not banking money in a captive. You get, you get a little into philosophical differences there, but uh, it depends on what the company wants to do and, and how it's going to run the captive. But when we're looking at a, a loan back, um, you know, we are really looking at the creditworthiness of the parent. Is it a good investment for the captive to be making essentially an investment in the parent? So we look at the parent's business. Uh, we look at the parent's credit rating among all the various agencies or credit rating agencies. We look at the parent's cash flow and, and the captive's cash flow. And if it's the kind of captive where you know you don't need the cash on a normal basis or you have plenty of cash sitting in the captive regardless of what you loan back, well then great. We're, we're likely to grant a loan and as I said before, every company is different. So some companies have huge loan backs. Others have relatively small loan backs and will come to us every year with, you know, hey, we, we're going to borrow $10 million today and pay it back in nine months. And then they come back every year with, you know, okay, we, we borrowed last year, paid it back. We want to borrow some money again. Other companies have uh, very seasonal cash flows, especially those that might have uh, like government contracts or school contracts where your, your money all comes in basically in, in one season and then you've got fairly long stretches uh, with no cash flow at the, at the parent level so that the captive can help with, with that. So same old story. Every company is different and unique, but uh, we, so we, we really look at the safety and soundness of that loan back to the parent. We don't take into account taxes. That's uh, not our, our concern, but uh, we, we always remind companies that there might be tax implications of taking a loan back, but it really is the, the creditworthiness of the parent company that we're loaning back to that is our, our first concern and the strength of the parent if in the event that we do have to uh, write off that loan or, or write down that loan. I applaud you, Dave, for, for saying you guys don't uh, advise on taxes because it's the same thing that I say and that we need the tax uh, consultants involved. But that is actually a very key point on a loan is you know, most of the tax advisors over the years have advised that a loan back shouldn't be more than, say, 30 to 50 percent of investable assets. So that's a consideration that goes into it as you're, as you're determining whether to do a dividend or a loan, as well as the regulatory requirements. I think the, the, the key piece of all this is that there are options. If you have a strong, well-capitalized captive, there's definitely options here. I guess you mentioned there, Pete, and Dave's mentioned it as well, but I think it's important to re-emphasize this. A lot of these tools and techniques are really only going to be relevant for well-capitalized captives. That's correct, isn't it? It's not going to be necessarily options available for very new, fresh captives, which have just been set up with only a couple of years of, of loss history. These need to be well-capitalized, mature captives. That's right. Uh, typically, if you're, if you're in those earlier stages and you were to try to do a dividend or um, alone. It, it depends on the situation. You know, Dave's comment uh, at, at the start, which is if you've seen one captive, you've seen one captive. But there's definitely specific considerations. You know, you don't want to put the, the captive in a cash flow pinch just to get money extracted out because it, it's it's helping on one problem but but causing another one. Okay, then. And just lastly, uh, Pete and Dave, one of the uh, other areas which is available, which Pete mentioned at the top of the episode, is, of course, selling off legacy liabilities. Of course, we're very familiar on this podcast with the guys at R&Q, who are big partners of ours. It's something that they do. And we often see it with mature captives uh, for numerous reasons when they want to uh, slim the captive down or even sell the, the whole captive. Pete, are you expecting that you will see more interest in in light of some of the obviously cash flow challenges captive parents will have? They will be 
looking at legacy liabilities in the coming years to see if they can sell those off to relieve some cash back to the parent. Yeah, the, the concept of selling off uh, legacy liabilities is not a new one. And it's something that should be looked at you know, by all companies, regardless of pandemics or other things that are going on, uh, just because it brings cost certainty and it can free up cash. Typically, when you think about a legacy liability transaction, if I'm carrying $5 million worth of liabilities in order to transfer that off to another party, it might cost me $5 million or possibly a bit more with the risk margin. But there's another side to it in that I usually have collateral posted to a carrier on the other side. So you want the transaction to be able to release that collateral. So ultimately, it frees up uh, cash flow on a net basis. So we're looking at those transactions on an ongoing basis. The, the situation we're in now, when you have a, an economic downturn, potential need for cash by organizations, uh, there's definitely increased interest in it. But when you think about the other, the other topics that we've had, which might be a dividend or a loan, those transaction, transactions can typically be executed in a shorter period of time than a legacy liability transaction. So yes, we're looking at them. I do expect to see an increase uh, as a result of the pandemic. But I think it's just going to be a philosophical change that says, do we want to just put in a process to continually monitor legacy liabilities and transfer those off uh, to get the benefits of, of the cash flow or the collateral? And then just lastly, then, Dave, your opinion on, on legacy liability transactions. Obviously, as Pete says, not a new thing, something that we you've seen plenty of over the years, I presume, uh, with Vermont's captives. What would be What's the regulatory involvement when it comes to a captive looking to sell off some of its legacy liabilities through a lost portfolio transfer or, or other means. Yeah, you know, we, we haven't really seen all that many transactions, uh, at least directly in, in in Vermont. The transaction is, is relatively neutral for the captive. Like Pete said, you might just spend $5 million to get $5 million of liabilities off your books and, and then a little bit more for the risk transfer. But the big benefit is, is going to be all the other ancillary things that go along with having those liabilities in the captive, like the collateral that you may have posted. So uh, we've seen a lot more buyers than sellers when it comes to legacy transfers. We've, we've seen a lot of companies that are interested in buying these legacy liabilities or buying old captives or buying runoff companies and much less interest in from the seller side. But that changes and, and it pops up here and there. And, and of course, it, again, it's, it's each individual circumstance. But for us, it's a fairly straightforward process to, to look, especially with a single parent captive. There's much less risk involved there to, from a regulatory point of view. If you're selling a group captive, then we're going to be looking much more carefully at the uh, at the capacity of the buyer to take on that risk. But in a lot of respects, it's, it's no different than any other sort of credit-based or reinsurance transaction, even what's the credit worthiness of the buyer or the person whose company that's going to be holding those liabilities going forward. Are they capable? Are they, uh, are they professional? Are they in this for the long term? You know, any, anytime we talk to these companies that buy old liabilities, they, they want to make sure they do it right because this is really a, a very big reputational risk for them. If they if they mess up more than once or twice, uh, they're going to be out of business. So, you know, the, the regulators aren't going to direct any business their way, or at least let other buyers know their sellers know that they're who the buyers are. And that's about all we do is we we occasionally will be asked who's out there buying these things, and we'll hand over a list of companies that are in that business. You want to be on that list, not off it. 
thank you to Pete Krantz of Beecher Carlson and David Provost from the state of Vermont for their insights on potential routes to capital extraction when the parent is in need of cash flow support. As a reminder, please do remember to give our LinkedIn page a follow. Just search for the Global Captive Podcast and do subscribe on your podcast app of choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, SoundCloud, to ensure every new episode is downloaded straight to your device. Stay safe, stay healthy, and see you next time, captives. Captives.